Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. I want to start off with a brief thought experiment this morning, and I want us to try and place ourselves in the shoes of an ancient Israelite around the time of 597 B.C. What was going on in 597 B.C.? Well, the Babylonians had invaded the southern kingdom of Judah, the two tribes that remained after the Assyrians had wiped out the northern ten tribes a few centuries earlier. The Babylonians came in, they destroyed the city, they destroyed the temple of God, and then they they, um, exiled the Jerusalem inhabitants to Babylon. And so if you put yourselves in their shoes, you have just seen in horror as what you previously had thought was impossible has happened. A pagan nation has invaded your country, a country that you considered to be made up of God's chosen people. They destroyed your temple, which was the house of God, the dwelling place of God, which provided you with spiritual stability and a sense of national identity. They forced you and your family to pack up and to journey all the way to Babylon, where now you're confronted not with the true worship of God, but with pagan practices and heathenism. What kind of conclusion would you draw from such a situation? I think for many Jews, they naturally ask, where is God? Where is God in all of this? Some of them may have gone so far to think that their God had been defeated by the Babylonian God. That was very, uh, very ancient Near Eastern way of thinking. If my tribe beats your tribe, then it must be my gods are stronger than your gods. But in such an historical moment, one can understand why there would be a general sense of hopelessness and spiritual instability. The psalmist actually explains their lament very well. He says, For there they that carried us away captive required of us a song, and they that wasted us required of us mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? Now, for us modern Christians, we have the benefit of hindsight in our interpretation of Israel's history. We can understand that this exile was God's punishment of the Israelites for their infidelity to their covenantal obligations. They committed the sins of idolatry. They went after other gods. They committed the sin of empty ritualism. They would worship God, check the box, and then they'd go out and they'd do all sorts of things that they weren't supposed to and always falling back on the fact that they had the temple, that they had the sacrifices. And they committed the sin of injustice, of exploiting the poor and the, and the widow and the orphan and the marginalized. The fact is that in the midst of this punishment, God was working to bring about Israel's salvation, Israel's restoration. The problems had to be addressed. Israel had to be punished, but it wasn't retributively. It was with restoration in view. And of course, ultimately, this whole ordeal and Babylon and then the return and the rebuilding of the temple sets the stage for the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so our Old Testament reading this morning from Isaiah 55, in it, the the prophet receives this glimpse into the future, even while in the midst of exile, and he receives a divine invitation that he extends not just to Israel, but to the whole world. And that invitation is to come to a feast. So what we see is that we have been invited to a great feast by God. And ultimately, 
when we actively receive his word by, by coming to the feast, by feasting on him, that word does not leave us unchanged. Now, I did want to talk briefly about the term, the word of God, because that's a phrase that you hear a lot. You know, we got to live in the word. We got to dwell in the word. Are you in the word? You might ask someone, but what does that mean? What does it mean to be in the word of God? For some people, the word of God means the Bible. And that's a good start. I think it's a little bit of a limiting definition, but it's a good start. In fact, the Bible actually defines what the word of God is for us. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning, with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So the word is not so much a book as it is a person, specifically the second person of the Trinity, the agent of creation, the wisdom of God, in whom all things live and move and have their being. And the beautiful part about the Christian story is that this word, this person, does not stand far off from us, but rather comes near to us. In fact, he's nearer to us than we are to ourselves. He makes himself present explicitly to us in two main ways. The first is in the sacrament of the altar, the Holy Communion, where we receive the word, we feast on the word through the bread and the wine. And the second is, is through, the, is through the proclamation of the church, beginning with the sacred scriptures, which are themselves a part of the proclamation of the church, and flowing into the life and mission of the church as it proclaims the gospel through the preaching of the word and, and lives and lives that carry that word out into the world. So when we talk about the word, we're talking about the person Jesus Christ, who's present to us in the Holy Eucharist and the proclamation of the gospel. What is the gospel message? Because that's another word that you hear a lot. Well, I just believe the gospel. What is the gospel? It is fundamentally an invitation to a feast. Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. And he that hath no money, come ye by and eat. Yea, come by wine and milk without money and without price. Hearken diligently unto me and eat ye that which is good. And let your soul delight itself in fatness. If you think about it, the scriptures are replete with the image of, fa- of feasting. We can think of the, the feast of Passover in the book of Exodus, where the Israelites feasted in anticipation of God's liberation of them from slavery in Egypt. We can also think of the imagery at the end of scripture, of the heavenly imagery in Revelation, where, where, where there's a supper of the lamb that's characterized by this, this eternal wedding feast, highlighting the intimate unity that we will share with God and with each other. The beautiful thing is that the feast that we're invited to includes everyone. It includes Jews and Gentiles, males and females, rich and poor, everyone alike. Behold, Isaiah says, thou shalt call a nation that that thou knowest not, and nations that knew not thee shall run unto thee. We can think of that parable of the great banquet in St. Luke 14. The host invites people to his feast, And even after the initial group of people decline his invitation, he sends out messengers even further and further, first into the alleyways of the city, gathering up as many people as they can, and then out into the highways and byways, the hedges around the city. He's so excited about having a feast, he's got to invite as many people in as he possibly can. Similarly, God invites us to his great feast out of his sheer goodness, 
And for us, that feast is the Eucharist, the feast at the very heart of the church. It's a new Passover because in it, we're delivered from spiritual bondage because Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. The feast is not something, too, that he, that he throws for us. You know, if I throw a feast, if I invite you over for dinner, I'll go buy a nice charcuterie board and I'll give it to you, put it in the middle of the table and we'll enjoy it and I'll buy some nice wine and we'll drink that together. But rather, the food that, that we're given at this feast is Christ himself. It's not something he goes by and buys at Wegmans. He's not a high priest who sacrifices an animal, but he offers himself. One of the early Christian images that was often used to depict Christ in his relationship to the church was that of a mother pelican to her chicks. Because what a mother pelican will do, especially when food is scarce, is she'll rip her own flesh and give it to the chicks. So Christ gives us, uh, gives us himself to be our manna from heaven so that we might be partakers of the divine nature, as Second Peter 1.4 says. And so when we feast now, when we receive the Holy Eucharist, when we come to the table, we get a little window, a little glimpse into our great hope that we may evermore dwell in him and he in us. Here's a question for you, though. Why is it a meal? Why is it a meal? Why did God do that? Why did God decide to give food as a chief sacrament to his church? Why does he invite us to eat together? And why does he promise us a perpetual feast? I think one answer is because by eating, we're reminded of our dependence, right? We have to eat. We're not all powerful in and of ourselves. We, we have to have something else provided for us. This is especially true after we fell uh, in Adam and Eve's story through eating, eating fruit. But also, I think, and, and more importantly, that eating is a recognition of love, right? If you share a meal with someone... It's a wonderfully intimate experience. You're inviting them to share life with you. You're deeming them worthy to give food to. And to think that's what God is doing for us. From one angle, we might write off eating as a purely biological necessity that we just have to do. That might be the only way we think about eating. But from a Christian perspective, I think we can say that the very idea of eating points us towards our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And the beautiful thing is that the cost of this meal that we're invited to is free because it's a gift. It's a gift. Gifts are unique from other modes of giving because they're not compelled, nor are they subject to any kind of market logic, right? So I don't give my landlord the rent money every month because I'm particularly fond of him as a person. I've never met him. I'm sure he's a nice guy. I exchange the money, though, for the ability to live in his house. So it's a mutually beneficial transaction, but at the end of the day, both of us are in it for what we can get out of it. I need a place to live. He needs income from his ownership stake in the property. Gift giving is totally different. It's motivated by something entirely other from this. In the divine economy, God's activities in relation to us are always gift. God didn't have to create us, but he did because of the overflowing love between Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. He didn't have to redeem us, but he did. And we receive that great gift of redemption through our baptism. And if you think about the posture one has in baptism, right? Baptism's not something you do. It's active reception. It's something that's done to you. Come unto the waters. The thing about gift giving is that it should come with a kind of reciprocity. 
right? So we just celebrated Caroline's birthday on Friday. The boys and I got her presents and gifts that we hope that she will appreciate. We know her pretty well at this point, so we're hopefully pretty good at that. Those gifts will then take on a special significance to her, not just because they're things that she might enjoy, but also because we are the ones who gave them to her. So there's some meaning attached to it. And in response, Caroline will hopefully get us good gifts at our birthdays. I put this in there for her. Uh, she'll, she'll, She'll listen to this recording later. But the point of the gift giving is not that it's a tit for tat ledger, Right? So I don't give her a receipt saying, this is how much money I spent for you, so I expect a greater, an equal or greater gift in return. Right? It's the idea that I love, and out of my love, I gave her a gift, and then she will do the same for me. We signal our love and our continued relationship. And so when God gives us not just the gift of our existence, but also the gift of our redemption, which was bought with so precious a price as his own blood— It's only fitting that we would respond by giving him something in return. But what can we give him? We offer unto thee, O Lord, ourselves, our souls and bodies, to be a living, a reasonable, holy, and living sacrifice. It's not a sacrifice that we make in hopes that God might love us. Well, if I just give him a little bit more of myself, then he'll finally come around. Or if I just stop doing that one bad habit, then he'll come around. No, we give him ourselves because he already loves us and we already love him. And that's why we're invited to this great feast. So the word is the person at the very heart of reality. He is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. He's all in all. He's in all things. He's working in all things. And Isaiah uses this beautiful analogy of water from rain and snow, which go forth from the sky to show the effects of the word in our lives. If you're like me, you may not always realize it's raining. Like when I wake up, I don't even think about it. And then I step outside and I go, oh, it's raining. And then when I figure out it's raining, I'm just annoyed at it. You know, it's just an inconvenience. But rain is never actually pointless, is it? Right? The rain and the snow provide the earth with hydration. That hydration is necessary for the earth to be fruitful, for plants to grow, and for animals to live. That fruitfulness is what provides the sower by giving him seed, the whole cycle. And, of course, it's also what gives bread to those who need to eat. It's where we get our food. The point in this analogy (coughs) that Isaiah makes is that just like the water is not wasted when it comes down from the sky in rain, so the word of God, Jesus Christ, does not return void. He proceeds from the Father, and he returns to him as the obedient one. He returns with all of us in him making us adopted children of the Father. And what that means is that just as water is always bringing forth fruitfulness, so the Son is always working in us. He's working in us right now. He's working as the scriptures are read. He's he's working in us as the gospel is proclaimed. He'll work in us as we come forward and we receive his body and his blood. He's working in us right now. He's calling us. He's drawing us. He's instructing us. He's reforming us. We're very much like the, like the lame man in the, in the story where Jesus says, get up and walk. All we have to do is receive that gift. Get up and walk. Do what he says. He's not going to leave us as he finds us. The fact that God is at work right now is a call for us to accept that invitation with our whole hearts, with all that we are. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. 
Call ye upon him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his, forsake his ways and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him. Now is the time to accept the invitation. Now is the time to attend the banquet. We can think about that parable from St. Luke 14, the great banquet. The master throws the feast. He invites an initial group of people, but the first man who's invited can't come because he just bought land. I'll have to skip this one. The second man declines because he just got a new team of oxen. And a third skipped because he just got married. In each case, each man allows his preoccupation with lesser things to make him miss the thing that matters the most. And so the master tells his servants rather angrily, none of those men which were bidden will taste my supper. This highlights the point that we live in a time right now of waiting, a time of divine forbearance and mercy. Nevertheless, we can rest assured that God will come to judge the quick and the dead. This is the time of preparation. This is the time that we are studying for the final exam, getting ready, knowing that his return is imminent. And so now is the time that we must cast off works of darkness and put upon us the armor of light. We have to keep our hands on the gospel plow, as Bob Dylan says. This begins with a simple acceptance to the invitation to that banquet, an acceptance that looks very much like the kind of acceptance the Blessed Virgin gives to the angel Gabriel. Let it be done unto me according to thy will. This is what we call active reception. Active reception, it's saying yes to God and then participating with him. And so we're given this initial invitation, come to the waters. But as we push forward, That yes to God will always be growing. It'll be more expansive in us, including every area of our lives, so that by the end, we pick up our crosses and follow him. The point is this, friends. It's now or it's never. The choice must be made immediately and it must be made constantly. Every now is a time to say yes to God, to accept his invitation, to receive the word of God deep in our souls, let it implant itself in us. Because when we do that, we know his word will not return void. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, amen.